from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The coronavirus, COVID-19 as it's called. Thousands have died. We Italians are living a nightmare. A severe lockdown in Britain. Surreal is the right way to think of it. Uncertainty in Estonia. You need to fight, but you don't know what you fight, how long do you fight. COVID-19 is a global catastrophe. If the illness that's associated with the coronavirus is not dark enough, there's an even darker side. And unfortunately, criminals do not sleep. Criminals trying to attack, take advantage of hospitals, and people working remotely. How to protect yourself. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. It started in late December, or so we thought. There are now reports and signs that the COVID-19 outbreak may have started well before that. Perhaps we'll investigate it on another program. But on this episode, the coronavirus is sweeping across the world and indiscriminately ravaging every country in its path. On this episode, we'll take a look at the damage on the ground in three countries, Italy, the UK, and Estonia. And then we'll take a look at the situation in the US with so many people working remotely. We'll take a look at another growing problem, hackers. We'll start in Italy, Rome to be specific, with Lau Patrilli, a journalist with RDS, Italy's largest private radio outlet. He's also founder of the WikiLau website. Well, JJ, thank you, and thank you for having me. Uh, the situation, of course, is uh, is a very, very uh, um, difficult situation for, for the country. The crisis is the first one we face in our lifetime of this kind and of this scale. Um, JJ, we've been both in war zones. Well, this is a different war. But it is a war, and the results will shape our future. As human beings, probably as societies, as nations, and in the international arena. We Italians are uh, living uh, a nightmare, um, and uh, we suddenly uh, uh, find ourselves in this nightmare uh, since uh, more than one month now. Uh, This is a stunned country. I guess more or less like everybody in the U.S. at this stage, we are living this nightmare. The vast majority of Italians are obeying the orders given them by the authorities, basically avoid physical contacts, stay at home, wash your hands very well. Um, the country, of course, was not prepared for this. Nobody in the world was prepared for this. Everybody is taking 
do Sam Majors, uh, All Around the World. Uh, but there is a reaction in uh, this country. We are the first uh, Western societies hit uh, by the virus so strongly, and so we are suffering for a lot of deaths. But mm -hmm. uh, we are seeing some we we are seeing some reaction and some results of the sacrifice. Uh, that we uh, made in the last uh, three weeks, more or less, since the government uh, gave the orders to stay home. Mm -hmm. uh, we are still seeing a lot of deaths. We are still seeing a lot of infections. But uh, the curve of the graphics of this, uh, uh, of this uh, uh, wartime uh, situation is starting to slow, especially uh, when we are talking about infection. This slowdown is very important. The only way we have to resist right now is not to find a vaccine. Of course, scientists are working yeah. on the drugs and scientists and vaccines. But the, the only reaction we have in our hands is to stay on, avoid physical contacts. And we are already seeing some kind of results, of course. Uh, we are not still there. Yeah. Uh, we need 10 days to understand fully if this is working. But we are already seeing some signals. Okay. Now, tell me what it was like when the the death started to mount. I remember you sent me a video of um, mm -hmm. the so many coffins, uh, so many um, people uh, being escorted through the streets of Bergamo. Tell me how that... Um, Tell me how that struck Italy. Well, yeah, we are talking about a uh, about a city was something like one hundred twenty thousand people inhabitants, and they have thousands of them, um, and um, more thousands of cases. Uh, the ones that we know that are positive are the test of the coronavirus. Uh, so we we can imagine that there are more infections around the country um, but uh, uh, in that precise area Lombardy which is the richest area in the country uh, which is the uh, a very very uh, dense population live there um, they have been struck very very strong and uh, we've seen some coffins taken away from the city uh, by the army because the uh, cemeterial service uh, are full they don't have any kind of place to uh, put the, the dead people and this is very sad of course so all these people all of these uh, bodies were escorted by the army outside of Bergamo um, even to some kind of autopsies um, uh, in, in, the, in the closest regions. Yeah. Uh, How did that make you feel when you saw that? Well, of course, it's very sad. It's uh, uh, stunning. And all the country suddenly saw these images in the television, on social media, and uh, they suddenly realized that uh, uh, it was very, 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 very sad. 1,700 miles east of Rome is Tallinn, Estonia, which is where we find Eva Ekpajuste, director of the Lennart Mary Conference, a part of the International Center for Defense and Security. I think that if we regard the situation and, and the uh, lockdowns in, in Europe and, and wider, we are somewhere in the middle way, uh, what means that uh, all of the uh, schools, universities 
uh, spas uh, and um, um, what what is, what is really shut down. We have not shut down uh, shops and and supermarkets, uh, but it is of people's responsibility to self isolate themselves and also to to minimize the social contacts. The last news from today was the uh, news about uh, to close in Tallinn all the outdoor uh, playgrounds for for kids because it was just impossible with uh, sunny days to keep people away from them. So it was, they were really crowded and, and regarded to be a risk. Does that mean that people were not paying attention to the guidance um, as they are in many other places. A lot of people are simply ignoring the guidance that they're getting to uh, keep social distances and to stay home. Was that the case there before the uh, uh, the before the decision today? Well, uh, I, I rather tend to say that uh, Estonian people are rather disciplined, but there is not really a very exact or, or very outright rules saying that you must not uh, go out. It is just the uh, strong uh, strong proposal, strong uh, to, uh, to minimize the social contacts and interaction. And then it is quite, quite much up to people themselves to decide that what does it mean for them minimizing social interaction and social contacts. Uh, so, well, uh, as it, it was said to people that they should not go to, to supermarkets, they should not go to malls, they should be all the museums, all theaters, all cinemas are closed. Then during weekend, it was quite understandable that all of them went out and tried to have a long, nice walk in, in sunshine, which at the same time meant that uh, the uh, in-town parks and and near town forests were full like malls on on a busy day with which what mm. what is not exactly what government meant by minimizing social interaction it's very curious that Payuste should mention this about the parks being overflowing just like the malls would be if they hadn't been closed because something very similar eerily similar happened in london Robin Simcox, a counterterrorism analyst living there, tells us their story. Robin Simcox, a counterterrorism analyst living there, tells us their story. I think there's been a, a, a few different stages regarding this. I mean, it, the British approach has been quite phased, and so it's not as if we went from one day you had complete freedom to the next day you couldn't. You were uh, you were being given. A curfew and things like that. It's, it's been a, a gradual step um, set of steps. I think one of the things that has been a little bit disconcerting to see is that the um, transport network, the London Tube um, pictures from this morning showed that it was still quite full, which is um, a little bit concerning to see in terms of the virus spreading. And also over the weekend, a lot of the parks were very busy. The weather's been surprisingly good in the uk recently and so there's been a lot of people out and about which is um and some of those pictures from the weekend of how full the parks were helped contribute to this decision by boris johnson to put more stringent measures on uh, to stop people interacting 
I understand that there is a fairly surreal kind of lockdown in place in the UK. Would you describe how this looks to you as a UK citizen? Yes, I think surreal is the is the right way to think of it. Um, there has been a obviously an unprecedented uh, restriction on people's freedoms in the UK at the moment. Yesterday, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced another um, kind of round of of restrictions. Uh, you can now only leave uh, the house once a day to exercise. Um, or to go and get basic supplies, all shops that aren't supermarkets and and essential uh, for your day-to-day sustenance essentially are now closed down. Um, I think there's an acceptance among the British people that it needs to happen to try and get uh, this virus under control. Yet at the same time, of course, no one knows exactly how long this is going to be happening for Um, And we'll have to wait and see as to how long people can sustain what is essentially a a pause being hit on their life. And uh, that's very interesting you say that because that happened here in the U.S. It's happened in Eastern Europe. uh, And, of course, it's happened right there in the U.K., the very same thing. Last weekend was a great weekend, and people just went out and with the intention, it appeared, to practice the social distancing they were being encouraged to do but somehow ended up in this great mass of people have you uh witnessed or heard of people that are sort of ignoring the social distancing or is it just accidental that people have found themselves in the same spaces i think you see you you do see people i mean for example um the pubs not all of them but some of them were open after they had been recommended not to be. So that was an example of something where the government had said, uh, had encouraged but hadn't forced pubs to close. And many pubs did voluntarily close, but many didn't. And that meant that you saw a lot of people still going to them, going to the pubs, even though they were very much being uh, implored and encouraged not to. I think most people have um, paid attention to the to the rules. and And, you know, it may be that something like we saw over the last weekend where people came out into into parks because there's been a i mean there's a there's a a rumor mill all the time around uh coronavirus at at the moment so i think a lot of the people that were out the weekend may have just seen it as their last chance to enjoy some sort of relatively uh normal weekend and some a kind of last gasp of freedom before the really restrictive um measures start being brought in. But I think I, I think that generally there's an acceptance that this needs to happen and an acceptance that we have to uh, get on with it. And the sooner that we take these steps, the social distancing steps, then the sooner life can get back to normal, be it in weeks or months. Um, we're not exactly sure yet. And that uncertainty grips the entire world. Now back to Tallinn, Estonia. As we continue our conversation with Eva Ekpajuste, director of the Lennart Mary Conference, which is a part of the International Center for Defense and Security, what kind of situation is the economy in? Well, it is, of course, it it it, it is very very complicated, and um, and our government has already published the first set of uh, proposals or or kind of help they offer to uh, to private enterprises 
for instance, it, it implies to uh, to enterprises and companies who have lost their uh, profit and have lost their possibility to work that they uh, they give help to to pay salaries for for workers of these companies and 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 enterprises, but it's clear already now that it is not sufficient because it's uh, first it is just for a couple of months and and it's just like intermediary uh, intermediary help, but it's for sure that some kind of more. Uh, more basic rules should be uh, should be overthought and and should be some other measures should be taken. So at mm. at the moment it is I mean that starting from from promoters and and people who work on on uh, spectacles theaters who work on on public sector restaurants I mean they are all just indeed worried because some of them really don't have means to survive another two weeks. So it's mm. it's getting pretty pretty critical here pretty soon because simply what enterprises and what the economy lacks is especially private enterprises, they do not have any reserve. I mean, that's so when just the inflow of capital and money stops, they are in practically in imminent crisis. There is no doubt, this coronavirus is going to continue to explode in various places all over the world. And as the U.S. takes stock of where it is right now, we go back to Lao Petrilli in Rome. So what advice do you have for Americans right now? Well, first of all, follow any kind of instruction that the authorities will give you and do it in a very mani maniacal way. If they told you, wash your hands, wash your hands very well. There are a lot of uh, tutorials on YouTube. You can see how you have to wash your hands for one minute. Uh, then don't touch your face, don't touch your nose, don't touch your eyes, don't touch your mouth. Avoid physical contacts. And uh, listen, we Italians are known in the world to be very passionate and this is a very family oriented society JJ I guess we are famous for that we like to stay in touch with our family and that means cousins uncles not only uh, sisters and brothers and brothers and fathers and mothers but we are doing it because this is the only way then authorities should be prepared to uh, um, uh, give a lot of masks a lot of gloves and of course intensive care beds in the hospital. This is crucial. We had uh, something like 6,500 uh, intensive care beds in the hospitals before the crisis. Right now, because in time of crisis, human beings are used to um, do very good things. So now we have 26,000 mm -hmm. um, intensive care beds in the hospital. Be creative. This is for the authorities. Be creative. I know you are very good. Uh, in organizing things. So be creative. Call your, um, the, the, the companies of the countries uh, are very good and very willing to help. We are seeing this in Italy too. Uh, companies that uh, were uh, working on uh, um, motors for car, 
uh, now are building uh, equipments for hospitals in a very short time, 10 days. This is an emergency. We can save lives by, by, by being very, very fast. This virus is fast. We need to respond in a very fast way. It's pointless to try to give you statistics on the situation in the U.S. because by now they're outdated anyway. And as the U.S. tries to steel itself for what could be a serious economic blow, workers all across the country have been sent home to work remotely. While this is very productive for the government and companies and organizations, it's a serious risk for people working at home. I spoke with Rachel Tobag. She's CEO of Social Proof. It's a firm that specializes in white hat hacking. Essentially, what they do is infiltrate companies using social engineering to help them strengthen their defenses. We talked with her about the risk that people face while working from home and some of the solutions. You know, COVID-19 is a global catastrophe right now. And unfortunately, criminals do not sleep. They don't think just because the hospitals are inundated with folks, let's not hit those hospitals with ransomware. These types of people go after the most vulnerable populations at the most vulnerable time. And it's really important for folks to understand that just because they are working from home, they cannot limit the way that they typically authenticate folks that they work with. So let's say you have to interact with vendors, um, contractors, people in your organization that you might not speak with on an everyday basis. Think through how would somebody try and pretend to be one of those people? Let's say um, let's say you work with a contractor who typically you see face to face. Now, this person, now that you're working online, do you have multiple methods of communication for that individual? I would really hope that you do, because the best thing that you possibly could do is use two methods of communication to confirm that a person is who they say they are. So what I would do as an attacker, mimicking what criminals do, um, is I would try and infiltrate the system that you use for authenticating processes or fund payments or um, making sure that people think that I really am trying to send this document that everyone needs to open at home. Um, And so what you need to do is you need to clarify that people really are who they say they are using a separate method of communication than you normally use. So um, if that person's emailing you, give them a call, chat them, Um, talk to them using any other method. Even if you have to say, hey, I'm jumping into another meeting right now. Can I give you a call back? That can thwart a spoofed phone call, which is extremely helpful um, to eliminate the phone attack vector. Uh, And so if you can do that, you will be able to keep yourself way safer because in the Barbara Corcoran case, for example, just checking that that person is who they say they are, really is a real estate company, would have prevented that attack. Uh, The bookkeeper saying, hey, quick question about this invoice to the real real estate company on a thread they already use and is known and trusted or picking up the phone and calling their hotline um, or customer support line. And they would say, ma'am, we didn't send you anything, right? And that's the easiest thing that you can do to kind of get around the way that attackers try to trick you. What is it that, and I want to talk to you briefly in a moment about breakout times for 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 these actors, how you know how long it takes them once they get where they need to get in your network to actually exploit it? I think you've sort of touched on how much time, how little time they need to actually put the 
connect the dots to, to get after your information, but I'm interested in finding out about the network on a broader scale. But what is it that can be done to get people to pay attention to what you just said? Because this is not the first time anybody has said this, but somehow, as you mentioned, even very well, uh, very prominent people get sucked into this. So what is it? Is it is it a matter of listening or is it just that this whole threat just gets more complex by 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 the day? Yeah, I hear that. Um, and that's a really big challenge is because the attackers are preying on human nature. You know, we don't want to stop being good, kind, helpful people. If we stop doing that, many of us would lose our jobs because we have to help the folks that we serve if that's a part of our role. And many of us have elements of our role like that. And so we have to realize and notice the types of trends that attackers use and then use technical methods to save us when the processes that we use or the way that we think through things fail. And so what I recommend is making sure that you always have two-factor on your accounts, multi-factor authentication, um, and using a password manager so that if something fails and you're communicating something um, and it goes to the, into the wrong hands, that person can't take over your account and then take over multiple of your accounts, which is really what we're seeing a lot um, in the work from home moments, you know, a lot of password sharing, password reuse. And I totally get that it's hard. It's, we're working from home now, we're working under really challenging circumstances, but we have to use those methods um, that we have, things like Duo security um, and other tools to allow us to work collaboratively and remotely um, while at the same time being secure. And these things happen fast. So when we gain access to your machines and your network and your systems and your protocols, things can go down in one day. And that's really challenging for people to hear. But when they can step into the shoes of an attacker and think through, okay, which principles of persuasion is someone trying to leverage on me right now? You know, if they can read, I recommend Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, if you haven't read it before, and really think through, okay, this person, you know, they're using human nature with me. They're, okay, they're talking through how they're similar to me. We're, we're working through reciprocity right now. Okay, cool. Got it. Um, oh, I see that they're trying to do commitment and consistency with me right now by getting me to say yes in the beginning and seeing if I'll continue, right? And if we can just notice those little things that attackers do, and we have systems and scripts set up to protect us, um, like saying things like, hey, I'm jumping into a meeting. Can I give you a call later? Or sure, let me just check on our protocol with that. And then take a beat to think about it before fulfilling a request, getting that data or transferring that money we can work to protect our, our businesses and people better. People that you see engaging in this kind of behavior, going after people working from home, um, trying to get into their networks, either their own networks at home or their company networks. Is there a standard that you've seen for breakout times for these organizations? How quickly, or these people, these actors, how quickly can they actually turn this around and get into uh, the network of a company, a large company, and do some damage? Unfortunately, it is pretty fast. Um, when we go through the social engineering process, we're trying, as as an attacker that's trying to learn these, these methods that criminals are using, I try and emulate what we're seeing in the field. Um, and generally, we can get in and pivot throughout a network, gain access within one day. So it takes a lot of research. We do OSINT, open source intelligence, before we go in, build and craft the attack, make sure we understand what operating system and services they're using and running. Um, and then we craft that attack to make sure that it will run on their systems and won't get uh, stopped or caught 
and any method um, that we use in the future. And so unfortunately, it is very fast and we have to kind of think about how do we stop it in the first place before we get to that point in that day? Well, this has been brilliant. Rachel Toback, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? Yeah, the one thing that I'm doing right now to try and help um, with the coronavirus is I'm working with hospitals for free. And so typically I charge for my trainings, right? It's my business uh, or I charge to sit down and, and walk through their systems and protocols, any company that I work with. But right now, any hospital, healthcare, anything within healthcare or related to healthcare organizations, I'm helping those organizations for free and donating my time. Um, so please get the word out. If you need support, let me know. Let's keep these hospitals and healthcare systems secure. And what kinds of things are they asking you to do? Sitting down with their teams and walking through their protocols to make sure that they are secure against attackers uh, like myself, but on the other side, um, making sure that they are trained and understand social engineering threats and vectors. They understand um, how ransomware is being leveraged right now and how to protect themselves. That's Rachel Toback, CEO of Social Proof Security. They are white hat hackers, the good guys, who help companies and organizations figure out where their vulnerabilities are so they can stop the bad hackers. Now taking a look at some other elements of the remote working environment and how to better protect yourself, we have Ida Myers, Vice President of Intelligence at CrowdStrike, talking about some best practices. Remote work and supporting remote work kind of has two flavors that we're seeing. We've we've had customers who are provisioning laptops and, and things of that nature for their employees. They're, they're taking corporate assets effectively, provisioning them for remote work and then sending them home with the employees and instructing them to work remotely. In those cases, they are deploying a lot of the security tools that they have at the enterprise level to include our products and We've enabled them to effectively do do what we call burst licensing to uh, so that they can use the tools that they need without worrying about the licensing and and things of that nature as we as we go through this this crisis together with our customers. Okay. The other thing we've done and and the other challenge has been organizations that don't necessarily have corporate a assets that they can deploy in this environment. And so what they're doing is they're enabling remote work and asking employees to use their home systems. That brings a whole host of different types of threats with it because those systems, we have you know, largely no idea what patch level they're at, uh, what platform it is, what else they've been downloading or doing on that system. Uh, so it's, it's really an untrusted environment. Could you just address um, how much interest you've seen from bad actors because of this? I've seen in several different places that there is significantly ramped up interest. Is that the same thing you've seen? And if so, what are your recommendations for people who are in this situation? Yeah, we've definitely observed threat actors using COVID-19 to up their operations. In late January, as the virus was, and the threat actors have been following the spread of the virus. So in late January, after the virus was spreading in Japan, for example, a criminal actor was using lures that pertain to COVID-19 to get people to open up documents. And it was in Japanese language. So they clearly understood that there was a heightened sense of awareness in Japan, and they were taking advantage of that. In early February, we observed Chinese-based espionage actors using coronavirus COVID-19 themed lures to target 
various entities in Asia. Uh, and we've seen that trend continue with multiple threat actors out of China. We've also observed North Korean threat actors using this this uh, uh, COVID-19 related wars to target entities in South Korea as they were uh, ex expressing that they were being hit pretty heavily with the virus. So threat actors have been taking advantage of that. In the last few days, we've seen more and more threat actors using uh, this war to try to get people to open up things and install malware. Factors that um, you believe help can help re ensure remote cybersecurity. Can you run through them? Yeah. So the first thing I think is to make sure that you have a, a cybersecurity policy that includes remote working. This has been a, something that you know a lot of organizations are kind of doing trial by fire right now because they didn't have that policy in place. As you start to roll this out, uh, you know this remote work environment take some time to think about what that policy looks like and ensure that you have uh, a good understanding of what that would look like. Uh, the other thing, as we alluded to earlier, was the the bring your own device, right? A lot of environments are, are having employees bring their own device, whether it be mobile platform or a uh, standard kind of uh, desktop type computer. And if that is the case, need to be thinking about um, how do you get security software on those devices and how do you ensure that, that those uh, employees can interact with your data safely and securely? Another thing is that sensitive data might be accessed through unsafe Wi-Fi networks. A lot of employees are sharing home Wi-Fi with, with, with children and, and uh, people that might not necessarily have the best security practices. So how do you ensure the uh, Wi-Fi is secure um, making sure that you have things like firewalls, that there's security controls in place that would be uh, in a traditional office environment and uh, ensuring that employees are certainly aware of the risks of accessing sensitive data over insecure Wi-Fi networks. Um, okay. Another, another thing is that uh, cybersecurity hygiene and visibility is critical. So just making sure that personal devices have uh, employees understand how to patch and that they've got some uh, some security software on those devices to try to limit the potential threat there. That's going to be one of the biggest concerns because a lot of home uh, users don't necessarily patch uh, routinely. They might not necessarily shell out any money for security software. And again, it's a shared uh, resource in many households. So ensuring that they, they're enabling their employees to have the right tools in terms of security and the right education to understand how to patch these systems. That's Adam Myers, Vice President of Intelligence at CrowdStrike. So just to review, this program has been about the devastating impact of COVID-19 on the entire planet. We've seen pandemics before, but nothing in our lifetime has erupted so suddenly and spread so fast. How long will it be with us? I can't say. Even the doctors don't know. But we all have our ideas. And as we leave today, back to Italy, to Rome, to Lao Petrilli, with a very poignant view of the future. This is a long crisis. This is going to last for one year all over the world. Uh, of course, it's tracking our economies. If you shut down our country, our economies will suffer. But uh, uh, if, you, if you close your country very well, uh, the agony will be short for the economy, will be short. And short will mean something like a couple of months. So, uh, 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 of course, it's very difficult. Nobody makes uh, 
clear predictions on this. I'd say that we can uh, uh, see some kind of uh, solid light at the end of the tunnel in 15 days in terms of uh, decrease of infections. And uh, decrease of deaths, I'd say one month. Of course, there are a lot of people in the intensive care units in the hospitals. And some of them, I'm afraid, they will not make it. I hope that, of course, I hope that they will all be okay, but the numbers are there to to say that probably some of them will not make it. But uh, I think that we will have to rethink our priorities, our society, um, our health will mean even more than in the past our wealth. Mm. So I I will never say that uh, we will turn back at the time we were before at the precise point we were before. I think this is a life-changing crisis for everybody, but I think that we can make it. And I think that we will make it in one month in terms of uh, uh, the sad uh, point uh, of deaths and infections, and some more uh, um, uh, more, uh, months more to see some kind of a new life coming out of this crisis. And of course, let me add this, JJ, if I have just 10 seconds more, we have to be careful because viruses sometimes turn back and turn back when it's cold. And so we have to be very well prepared for the next winter time because probably we will not have a vaccine, especially in millions uh, of, uh, of doses uh, for the end of the year. We have to be prepared. That's Lau Petrilli speaking to us from Rome. Lau and the rest of our guests spoke to us via Skype because, after all, we're all working remotely. Coming up on our next episode, we'll continue our conversation about the coronavirus. And on that program, we'll talk about the national security concerns. That's coming up in our next episode. If you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at WhiskeyTangoOscarPapa.com. J Green at WTOP.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. That's at T-U-S-A Podcast. Also, if you're interested in even more national security news, sign up for our newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. And you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From the creators of Cold Case Files and PD Stories comes an awesome new true crime podcast, I Survived. I Survived shares firsthand accounts of amazing stories of survival. Coming up in a few seconds is a teaser, so be sure to check it out and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. I survived because I convinced him that I was a person. I survived because I was a smarter person than my assailant. I survived because I I believe God saved me. From the network that brought you the Cold Case Files podcast comes I Survived. He had his right hand held high up in the air, and in that hand was a big knife. The classic stories you know. Pointed the gun at me and he said, if you don't smoke this, I'm going to kill you. 
and he forced me to smoke crack. And I said, it looks like dynamite. And he said, if you do not do every single thing we tell you to do, you will disintegrate. With new interviews, updating each woman's story with everything that happens after survival. I was waking up in the middle of the night, standing on top of our bed, screaming, and I was positive he was in the room. I felt like a throwaway person. I didn't think anybody would ever love me again. We talk about the justice system. My testimony, I was not a tearful widow. And I think the jury saw me as someone who was not grieving appropriately. How they started to heal. I know in the black community, there's like this stigma that if you go get help, like there's something wrong with you. I really felt strongly that I needed to just basically give away everything we had and drive to Alaska. And so much more. I don't know, you just have to let people understand that every reaction is normal. And if you survived it, you did the right thing. That which does not kill you will make you stronger. I am so much stronger than I was even before. And I've really enjoyed feeling that way. Surviving is just the beginning of their story. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.